No mai, haere mai. Kia ora, everyone. Ko Paula Morris, taku ingoa. With respect, I acknowledge the mana whenua, naitua huriri, and thank them for welcoming us here. Thanks also to Penguin Random House for their support of this event. And welcome to you all to a very special event at Word Christchurch, one that combines words and sounds and invites us to listen, to imagine, and to travel in time and space. Wuti Ihamaira is our preeminent storyteller. For 50 years, he's taken us on journeys into history and myth, family, communities and societies, cosmology and whakapapa. And he's challenged us to question what's understood about this country and to explore what's unknown. Within the swirling spirals of his narratives, rich with reference, we see the complex dimensional layers of the worlds we traverse. Tonight, these spirals will unwind from his second volume of memoir, Native Sun, and his enticing new book, Navigating the Stars, Maori Creation Myths. Now, Witi is not just a writer, he understands the power of the word as sung or chanted, the power of poetry, the power of oratory, the power of waiata. I love hearing him live, and I love hearing him in particular performing with Kingsley Spargo. Kingsley's soundscapes create transcendent, vivid atmospheres and startling counterpoints that draw us deep into the beating heart of story. I'm really delighted we can all be here tonight to experience this. Please welcome Witi Ihmaira and Kingsley Spargo. My father, Teha, and I had a deep love for each other. It was like the love of the warrior chief, Rua Te Papuke, Rua Te Papuke for his son, Te Manu, who one day went missing while sailing on the sea. Rua Te Papuke had fashioned a stone into an exquisite fishing lure that he named after Tangaroa, Tangaroa, god of the ocean, without the sea god's permission. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that to Tangaroa, a sacred lure in his name without permission. Thinking that Te Manu's canoe had sunk, Rua Te Papuke, the great warrior Rua Te Papuke, swam downward, ever downward, to retrieve his son's body. The sea darkened to cobalt blue. There! Lit by the fires of underwater volcanic fissures was Tangaroa's underwater kainga. There, the sea god's meeting house, Hui Te Ananui. There, the phantasmagoric edifice carved with gigantic representations of squid, octopi, and stingrays, 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 stingrays. Ruotepopoke the great warrior approached the doorway and came across the guardian, Hine Matikotai. Have you seen, have you seen my son? Have you seen my dead son, my dead son? He asked. Seek your answer inside, Hine answered. Such amazement 
The interior carvings were speaking and singing to each other. Have you seen a drowned boy, my son? One by one, the panels replied. Ask the teko teko, ask the teko teko, ask the teko teko. They were referring to the gable of the house. And when Rua Tepopoke went to look, he discovered his son Temanu, his beautiful boy, alive, but cruelly tied there with harsh ropes. Tagaroa, the sea god, had punished him by making him into a living ornament. His hair swirled in the currents and air dribbled from his lips. Father, father, why have you taken so long to come to get me? The great chief, the great warrior chief, Ruotepepoke, started to release his son from his bonds, but then he paused, angry at the terrible revenge Tangaroa had exacted on his beautiful son, his beautiful son. Why had Tangaroa done this? I will exact payback against your own children, sea god. The Ponaturi, the Ponaturi, the hideous half-fish, half-men, the sons of Tangaroa. And the caretaker, Hine Matikotai, agreed to help him. Why did they do that? Tangaroa's children have an aversion to sunlight, she told Rua Tepopoke. The brightening sea can destroy them. Do you see the gaps between the war posts of the whare? When the ponaturi are asleep, close them. That way Tangaroa's horde will sleep on, still thinking it is night time. Suddenly... Throughout the ocean came the sound of strange and eerie karanga. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? There it is. It's the sound of nightmares, don't you think? Nightmares sound like that. They sound like that, nightmares. Oh, hide quickly, Hidematikotai called out. The devilish lords are returning. And shrilling, the hordes of Tangaroa descended from the sky of the sea. The sound was so deafening that Ruotepepoke came dizzy and disoriented. And it came to him that this was the way the Ponaturi hunted, surrounding their prey with a squid shoal or battery of barracuda. They would open their jagged mouths and scream. of Sonic stunned their victims. The Ponaturi went in for the kill. Is this how you captured? Is this how you captured my son? The Ponaturi swarmed the meeting house to rest. They could well kill Te Manu now. No, see them. They are going into Henete Ananui, the hordes of Tangaroa, amusing themselves, singing, dancing, and having hand-clapping contests.
But finally they went to sleep. And Ruotepapuke, the great warrior chief, sprang into action. Oh, where? He realized he would have to work fast to complete his plan. Oh, where? He would have to cement seafloor material in the cracks of the walls before dawn. Oh, where? Oh, where? Oh, where? Oh, where? Just in time, great chief. Here comes the dawn seeping through the sea. And look, the interior of the house is still in darkness. But listen, the Ponaturi is starting to call out, Hey, Hinematakutari! Surely the daylight is here, and we should seek the darker recesses of the sea. Sleep on, Master, she replied. It is a long night. And finally the sea is blazing as if terror has fallen into it. The father springs into action. Watch him as he unplugs the gaps of the walls and lets the sunlight pour in, the sunlight pouring in. Oh, where we shall be killed, the Ponaturi scream. They try to escape the sunlight, but <laughs> it lances them all. Their bodies catch fire and explode. <laughs> Some try to go through the door, but Luotepopoke is outside with his fighting weapon. He slices at the Ponaturi. Hey, 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 His mirror swings up and down. Hey, hey, and when he has killed all Tangaroa's horde, only then does Ruotipapuke grab his son Timonu and they rise up through the glowing Konamu of the sea. Upward, upward, together. that ever, if ever, I was in trouble, Dad would come for me. He might arrive late, he always arrived late, and I might have to wait. I always had to wait. But Dad's love for me was so great that he would confront Tangaroa or any other god if he had to. <laughs> Thank you, Paula, for introducing the session and Rachel King and the organising committee of World Word Festival for inviting me down to Christchurch. I've come with my very good friend, multi-instrumentalist, Kingsley Spargo, who will, be, who will be partnering the session with me and me with him. But as newspaper columnist Anne Landers has famously said, Kingsley, things are always darkest before they become totally black.
Well, we've just performed for you the first of our readings tonight. It's called A Tickle Tickle Cradled in Loving Arms, which is how I sometimes see my relationship in mythic terms with my father. The extract actually appears in both the books featured in this session, the memoir Native Son, published in 2019, and my non-fiction history of Māori mythology, Navigating the Stars, published this month. And you're lucky here in Christchurch because you're the only people who've got the book. I have a habit of recycling material too. In the first book, Dad appears as a character in my life. Well, he has no option. In the second book, um, he appears with my nanny, Mini Tupara, as the main family source for the material in that book. And again, he has no option. When he was alive, he was my best friend, and I truly, really loved him to bits. Ko te kōpara anake e rere ana ki te tihi o te makauri e kore e mimitia noa. My father, Nanny Mini, and my elders bequeathed me the good fortune in my life to sup like the bellbird from the sweetest berries among the highest branches of the makauri tree. This tree is the emblem of my tribe, Te Whānau Akai of Gisborne, and its fruit is indeed delectable and esteemed in our mythology. They have also given me good genes and the stamina required to have a long career in literature thus far. Marcel Proust, in his book, In Search of Lost Time, the captive writes, when we have passed a certain age, the souls of the child we were and the souls of the dead from whom we have sprung come to lavish on us their riches and spells. So in this hour, I'm going to introduce you to some of those people who lavished me with, lavished me with their wealth and assets because here's the thing. I have had no option but to accept their enchantments either. So this lady, this lady is my paternal grandmother, Teria Pere, my father's mother. The photograph was taken on a Gisborne Street, either in 1946 or 1947, when I was two or three years old. I wish I was still as cute. I owe this lady my politics, as she was the one who, when I was just a little older than the boy in the photograph, showed me the world I would grow up to live in. Every writer must have a foundation story, and some of you already have heard mine, but others might not have, so please bear with me. I was five, and I had gone with my older cousins by bus, bus from Waituhi, the village where I was brought up in, to nearby settler-populated Patutahi. And just like every five-year-old on their first day at school, I'd had a great day. And when I arrived back at Waituhi, my grandmother, Teria, was waiting for me with a question. So, which, what did you learn at the Barkerha School today? They taught me a nursery rhyme. Nan, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Mmm, Nan said. Who were Jack and Jill? Why can't they be Hone and Mere? And what's Jack doing wearing a crown? It's his own fault if he falls down and breaks it. But her killer question came with her next critique. And what's Jack doing going up a hill to fetch water? <laughs> what a stupid place to put a well. I went to school again the next day, and there was Teria at the roadside again, waiting my safe return from the lands of the Pākehā. And this time when she asked me what I had learnt, I recited, Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her goods and whey. 
Along came a spider and sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. Well, in Nan went, doing her bun. Who's Miss Muffet? Why can't she be called Mihi Mahapihi? Hands up those who know what curds and whey are. Who knows what a tuffet is? And then came that usual killer question from my nan. And why should the little girl be afraid of a spider? She should have said kia ora to it and put it out of harm's way. Well, Teria taught me to always question everything I was told, even something as inoffensive as a nursery rhyme. She was the one who showed me that I would soon enter a different world where people built wells on tops of hills and had values different to ours. She was also pointing out gender roles. Jack wears a crown. Where's Jules? And little Miss Muffet, if she had been little Master Muffet, what would he have done to the spider? That's right, he would have squashed it. Much later in our lives, my sisters and I ran around the house singing Jill and Jack went up the track to fetch a pail of water. Jill fell down and broke her crown, and Jack came tumbling after. So again, it also all depends on who is telling the story, doesn't it? By the time I was nine, when I wrote my first story for Miss Hossack, I was already on my way to subverting the main discourse. Once upon a time... There was a princess locked in a tall tower guarded by a fierce dragon, and every day she would go to the window and see a handsome prince ride by on a white horse. And she would yell, help me, help me, save me from this dragon. But because she was so ugly, the princes on their white horses would take one look at her, gross, and ride on by to rescue a more beautiful princess further down the road. Day after day this would happen, the princess would go out again yelling, help me, help me, but that handsome prince would keep on riding down that long, long road until one day the princess got so sick and tired of waiting that she went out and married the dragon. <laughs> well, the frame may have been that of the European fairy tale, but the story is starting to leave it by confounding the frame's expectations. The princess is not beautiful. The handsome prince is not chivalrous. In the end, the princess marries the dragon. She acts for herself, as all women must. She doesn't wait around for her handsome prince. I see that many of you had, did wait for him. And she embraces the land of danger and a different tino rangatiratanga destination for herself. Well, Paula, some people would say that my fiction has not improved. But I was on my way to decolonizing myself. Well, Kinsley doesn't know that I've got these two daughters who always warn people who are following me to be careful because I often step in something. So I better have a look at the soles in your shoes, Kingsley. <laughs> well, Teria, she features a native son which takes its title from two books by black American writers, Richard Wright's Native Son of 1940 and Notes of a Native Son written 15 years later by James Baldwin in 1955. In 1972, when I was first published, my childhood and boyhood years had changed. The years of Māori protest had begun in earnest. Treaty of Waitangi issues, Tino Ranga Tiratanga. Māori started to hold New Zealand to account with sit-ins at Parliament, Ngātamatoa and the Polynesian Panthers' petitions to have the language taught, to have Māori courses at all New Zealand universities, and protests to create a Māori television station. 
And then in 1975, the great Māori land march was just around the corner. Now look at us 50 years later. A third of the current New Zealand Parliament is either Māori, Pacifica or other. In my day, there were only four. The Waitangi Tribunal has settled with seven major claimants and over 70 claims, Māori television, Pākehā and Māori are learning te reo. I tell you, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, as an aspiring Māori writer, New Zealand literature too was a treaty matter, so I looked for exemplars for my decolonisation, both from New Zealand and overseas. My peers, Patricia Grafe, of course, Albert Went, Aboriginal poet Kath Walker and Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe were inspirational. And when Achebe read Joyce Carey's Mr Johnson, in 1939, set among black people in his own country, he wrote, it dawned on me that although fiction was undoubtedly fictitious, it could also be true or false. Achebe, as much as anybody, made me realize that if Māori wanted to escape the prevailing gaze of fiction, we had to create our own. Regarding Wright and Baldwin, I mean, this will be interesting for, for those who are younger in the audience, Neither book was in the library and there was no internet. I had to send away overseas for their books and they took four months to make the trip from the United States. There weren't many books available by indigenous writers either, but my practice then, as now, has been to read not just only white but colour, read black as well, because black lives do matter. And the words I read of Baldwin's in his book then still apply to me now. He wrote, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticise her perpetually. I feel the same about my role in this country that we all love, Aotearoa, New Zealand. So this is the shearing gang because my experience wasn't black or Nigerian. It was in that valley way to here and my country was New Zealand. And my reality was actually the shearing gang the world of bully busher, king of the gypsies. Don't forget that the wool and sheep farming industry was the largest export earner for New Zealand in the 1960s and 70s, and our sheep numbers hadn't peaked yet. They came with 70.3 million sheep in 1982. And this photo shows members of my father's num number two shearing gang. Mum and dad are in the photograph, my sister Vicky and brother Derek and all the Māori and Pākehā boys who loved mum and dad smiler. I'm not in it. I was taking the photo, the novelist being the eye of the camera. The main point about all of this is that I found a parallel between what Catherine Mansfield was doing. You remember Catherine Mansfield? She was, she, she was writing a prelude or The Doll's House, um, um, and she was writing about wanting to make New Zealand leap, an undiscovered country, into the old world. She wrote, Oh, I want for one moment to make our undiscovered country leap into the old world. It must be mysterious as though floating. It must take the breath. Similarly, I wanted to write the Māori story, not into old Europe, though, but into old New Zealand. And so my personal story also entered the Pākehā story. And in many ways, the Mahana family, the family of the Shearing Gangs, in all of my first books is my Māori equivalent to the Bernal and Sheridan families in Mansfield's work, a Māori family to live alongside hers. And I think that even today, her and my family cycles are the only comparable 
examples in our literature. But how could I make my undiscovered country mysterious and floating, able to take the breath? How could I do that? I found it in the Māori world of the marae, in Māori whakapapa, and in particular Pūrāko, the mythic, mystical and passionate, rather than real, world of Māori history and folklore. So every writer has to have a world to write about. This is mine. Welcome to Rungapai, the meeting house of the Waituhi Valley. The photograph was taken by international photographer Macduff Everton, and when seeking his permission to publish it in Native Sun, I told him that I wanted this photograph because this is what my heart looks like. When Mr Everton wrote back, granting his permission, he said, there won't be a fee for the scan of your heart. <laughs> so this is what this is. It's a scan of my heart. The meeting house was built in 1884 and painted by young tribesmen and women on the expectation of the return of our old rebel leader, Te Koti Arikirangi Te Tūriki. It portray, portrays their millennial dreams of living in a hopeful, holistic future, and it is at the centre of my imaginative world. And those dreams that they had are not too different from the millennial dreams of today's young writers, Māori and Pākehā, actually living through COVID-19 with the world on the brink of ecological, economic and humanitarian collapse. It is for these reasons that I seem to be writing faster and that in my maturity that all these tipuna have truly lavished their spells on me. They squabble away in that room just behind my eyes about where I should be going. They are scraping my skull out and I have no option but to obey, they say, me do. So in recent years, I have been writing all over the bloody place. And now in my latest book, Navigating the Stars, those tupuna have taken me all the way back, spiralling into myth, into a capacious inventory of incredible stories of amazing ancient futures. In 1973, Alice Walker wrote a poem entitled Be Nobody's Darling. Perhaps some of you know it. Although she uses the following phrase in a different context, Walker really speaks for me. I think that I have reached the status where I am thoroughly qualified to live among our dead. Here's a reading entitled The Goddess Hinenui Te Pō from the new book. And so Maui embarks on his journey to face Hine Nui Te Pō. Hine Nui Te Pō, Hine Nui, Hine Nui Te Pō, Te Pō, Te Pō. It is a physical descent immensely potent as an allegory, rich in meaning. He arrives at the same crossing where Tane, his ancestor, had first pursued the goddess when she sought refuge in Rarohinga, the underworld. But his mission 
is a reversal of his ancestors, not to save an Inuiti poor, but to kill her, to kill her, to kill her. He negotiates at the entrance with Teku Watawata, Teku Watawata, Teku Watawata, the gatekeeper. And on the way, he picks up mates, among them Ti Waka Waka, the fantail, Ti Waka Waka, the fantail. They are the sidekicks, the blokes, the common relief, the comic relief, in on an act tantamount, tantamount to rape. You all know men like that, don't you, Wahinema? Maui goes by way of the dead, even though only they can enter. He is characterized as Maya, a term suggesting bravery and boldness. Well, after all, this is a story that was written by men. By contrast, Hinenuitipo is demonized, turned into something monstrous, frightening, introduced with premonitory and menacing imagery. Her body is human, but her eyes are green stone. Her hair is seagrass and her mouth is a barracuda. She, who is the mother of the poor, becomes a malevolent goddess of sex and death. But the most, the most despicable focus is on the representation of her outer genitalia, your outer parts, women, ladies, as having a monstrous life of their own. In the course of his journey, Maui hears a strange sound, as if something is whispering to someone. Who is that talking? Who is that talking? Who is that talking? It is the pua-pua of Hinenuitipo, Tiwaka Waka says, her vulva. But who, who is it talking to? It is murmuring to itself, is how the descriptions go. That's how the early descriptions go, because early folklorists chose not to include this and other sexual imagery in their versions of the story, just as the early missionaries removed penises from Māori carvings. It might reveal a misogynistic view of women, but it also acknowledges the power of women, power through their sexuality, as well as their ability to create life, to create life. And suddenly, Maui and his party are there. Before him lies Hinenuitipo as the goddess of sex and death. All sense of her as a living female entity is erased. She is a monster. She is monstrous. She is a monster. Her thighs are open. They are open. And her poor poor are gaping. Do not utter a sound as I enter the belly of that old lady. Maui instructs Te Waka Waka and the others. Do not, do not utter a sound. Only when 
I had emerged through her mouth. Can you cheer? Lashes his sharp patu on his hands, sheds his clothes, and stands before Hininui de Paws, Pua Pua, and her magnificent thighs open to receive him. I like to think of my work as books you can press noses with. And with Navigating the Stars, I have tried to recreate a narrative of the Māori through our myths. I really tried to saturate it in the divine that I always get from my meeting house. Our tribe says of itself, Te Whānau Ākai, Hei Pana Pana Maro, Te Ākai, are a tribe who never retreat, and we don't, and they make me gasp. Okay, so guess who? Well, he is, the, he is the witty who is the subject of Native Son, the writer's memoir. And as I said earlier in my writing, lately has taken me all over the place and has recently taken me into the memoir. Up until the first one, Māori Boy, I was mainly a fiction writer and used the novel and short story to hide myself in. The memoir forces the writer, however, to come out from behind the camera and put yourself in the picture too. I guess the equivalent is taking a selfie. I was really enjoying the writing, and because I have a memory of an elephant, I allowed the writing to go anywhere I wanted it to go. My consciousness was writing an elephant, and my unconscious self carved everything away except the elephant. Fiona Kidman once said to me, of all the genres, memoir leads us down more unexpected paths than any other. We think we know ourselves, but do we really? And Janet Frame, when asked about her own phenomenal memory, answered, it is my memory. In some things, yes, I'm particularly observant, but when I'm writing, I have a clear observation of particulars I never knew I noticed. So in the process of writing, in the moment, in what I call inayane, I was completely taken unawares by a trauma that I had locked away for 60 years. And it's this trauma that is Native Son's crucial subtext. Oh, I could have still locked it away, but there was a young boy I had to answer to. Him. So here's things fall apart. 
I was teaching a creative writing class once. Alice Tiponga Somerville was in the group. She is now one of Māoridom's leading academics. One of her family students put in a story about a young boy who commits suicide by slitting his wrists. I pointed out that this was a method that girls usually do, not boys. Boys, I said, either shoot themselves in the head or get in a car and drive it into a tree. I felt no triumph when the student walked out of the room. Alice went to support her. The student's brother had shot himself, and rather than revisit the pain of that event, she had chosen to distance herself from it in fiction. How did I know how boys killed themselves? This is how. I could not distance myself because I was not writing fiction. You gave up fighting. Didn't you, Witty? A car was your weapon, but you didn't drive it into a tree. Dad had conveniently installed a new roller door on the carport. Can you remember the whirring noise as it went down, as it went down, and the clunk as it hit the concrete floor? You felt that you had come to the end and that if you continued living, someone would find out your secret, that you had been raped as a young boy, didn't you? You might have saved yourself if you had somebody to talk to, but you didn't. You couldn't speak to Dr. Boger because then he would know. You couldn't talk to Dad because then he would know. You were glad that your beloved grandmother, Teria, was dead because now she would never know. The only person, ironically, that you could have spoken to was the rapist because he had been there. Your thoughts fill with your father, Teha, during the weekend. You had watched him coaching your three sisters how to shoot the ball for a goal in indoor basketball. You marveled at his instructions to shoot high, not flat, so that the ball would fall into the hoop. You felt you could never aspire to his masculinity and sheer strength, didn't you? All right then, Witty, best to end it. You get a garden hose and put one end in the exhaust pipe of the Holden. You close all the windows of the car, except the driver's side window, that one, you leave till last. Once you have put the other end of the hose inside the Holden, then you start the engine and sit there with the motor running and very soon the interior begins to fill with petroleum fumes. It doesn't take long. The smoke blows, the smoke blows. Let's get this over with smoke. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Your parents want you to go on a church mission. The local chapel has begun raising money for you to go to America, to Brigham Young University. Hurry up, smoke. Hurry up, hurry up. Your grandfather wants to arrange a marriage for you to a nice girl from Tuhoi. Come on, smoke. Hurry up. Your teacher, Mr. Grono, has high hopes for you. But you are a boy. You are a boy who cannot fulfill expectations. You are not that boy. You can't fulfill their dreams. You've always been weak. You should have tried harder. You should have tried harder to stop them. You're an utter failure as a young masculine man. Could you be gay? Could you? Just losing, just before losing consciousness, you remember your mother? When you were born, she told you. When you were born, you were the first thing I had ever truly owned. The car engine running, running running. The fumes are filling the interior where you sit. You thought this would be easy, a lovely slipping off into sleep. It's not like that. Don't anybody let, tell you 
that suicide by asphyxiation is a good way to die. Your body goes into paroxysms. Your mouth fills with bile. You are reaching. But you are by degrees. You are by degrees. Not stopping it because you don't want to stop it. You want to lose consciousness. You must lose consciousness. You must die. You want to die. You have to. There, there, witty. Let it happen, boy. Don't fight it. There, there. It was Charlie Mohi, a friend of Dad's, who saved you. He was passing Hague Street and he decided to call in and see if you were home, doing your homework like a good boy, not out of town or with your mates like a bad boy. He saw the carport door down, lifted it up, the fumes billowing, pulled you out of the car. No, Witty. No, boy. Not this way. Not this way. Not you. You survived, Witty. And please don't feel sorry for me. Save your sympathy for those boys who try to commit suicide and succeed. Those beautiful young men all lost to families and friends. All those gorgeous boys. What would you say to people now, these many years later? It would be this. You must never let sexual abuse of any kind, whether it is long-term molestation, rape or incest, define you or the life that comes after you, dry your tears. It was not your fault. It wasn't your fault. Yes, it is tried to say that words are easy and actions harder than anything. And you know yourself that recovery for the victim takes years and years and years and years and years and years. But you must fight hard. Do not blame yourself. Do not let what happened to you and you and you blight your relationships. O oh, child, prevail. In the midst of a dark winter, you will find an indomitable summer. before we leave and this is called Leaving for London Jane and I left on the MV Akaroa on 13 March 1971 I was 27 and a year later my first book would be published my first book 1972 my childhood years had informed the content my juvenescence honed the writer in me and all that was needed was a bit of Distance, and that day had come. Everything in me, the ihi, wehi, mana, and the aroha, it just leapt forward from my ancestors, forward into anticipation of what I would tell the world about them, about the rongopai, about the belly of the waituhi, about all of those people. 
and the ship left the quay on a cold, wind-swept afternoon. Joy Stevenson came to see us off. She had a long white scarf and waved it very slowly so you could see it for miles, fluttering back and forth, fluttering back and forth. Jane and I stayed at the stern, wrapping ourselves in each other. The other passengers melted away, shivering, to find warmth and coziness inside the staterooms. It's just us now, Jane said. The water in the inner harbour was grey and calm. As we approached the Wellington Heads, however, the waves were choppy. And then, when the Akaroa went through the swell of the open sea, it set up a sublime, rhythmic lifting and falling. And the colour of the water turned a startling blue. By the time the ship turned northward out of the Cook Strait into the open sea, the light was fading. Then look, Jane said. Three dolphins came leaping, speeding after us through the waves. They skimmed to the phosphorescence of the ship's wake, wrapped themselves in it, and leaping, they tossed this glowing spray with their tails to each other. I knew that Jane and I were on honeymoon, yes. I also knew that the ancestors in the room behind my eyes were confident that I would do it, become a writer. But look at what it has cost you, Witty. Look at what it has cost you. Because of what your cousin did to you all your life, you have battled yourself, your sense of worthiness and unworthiness. Take a bow, for you have been an exemplary opponent. You have oscillated between unweaning ambition and self-destruction, brought up in two cultures with their own firm views of masculinity and sexuality, you have willingly and willfully transgressed. Still wrestling with angels, you have paid the price. You have found great difficulty celebrating yourself. Your relationships have all been affected by the rape by a relative. Beloved of Teria, though you have been, you have felt unworthy as a grandson. You have been undeserving of your iwi and whanau. Only the intervention of loving parents and mentors has brought you through it. Mum and dad, eh, witty. Mum and dad. Like all parents, they came without being asked. After all, this is what loving parents do. This is what they do. Your relative turned your world to chaos. But you must not admit the tohu, the shame of what he did. And you must write, you must write, you must write, you must write, you must write. You have to transcend yourself. You just have to. For the sake of everything, you have to do it. If you don't, he, 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 he will win.
and Kingsley, that was so wonderful. I have to say to you all that the books from which Witty has been reading tonight are outside in the stand. Witty will be out there signing them, and Kingsley also has CDs out there. I really encourage you to buy as much as possible and read as much as possible and listen to as much as possible. Please join me in thanking again Witty Ihamaila and Kingsley Spargo. (laughs) 